بیمان قدم بودیم. ممیز فلان هدیه. و آشنا دوستان این الله وحده لا شریک است. و آشنا آن محمد عبده و رسوله. قال الله تعالى يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وتقاتلوا ولا تقولون إلا وأنتم مسلمون. All thanks and praises due to God. We seek His help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of our evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whoever God leads astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but God, alone without any partners, and I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and God's messenger. For you who believe, be mindful of God, as is God's due, and make sure you devote yourselves to God to your dying moment. It is an honor and pleasure to be here with all of you this afternoon. Sometimes I do this thing where I delay my preparation of my speech until I, the nervousness overcomes me. And then I prepare it out of a sense of ritual and obligation for preparing a speech. And so I have a chutzpah that's prepared about Islamophobia and how I find inspiration in our tradition for combating it. And what specifically I think all of us can work on together to change the tide. But it's hard not to be overcome by emotion hearing a woman called the Adan for the first time, speaking to an all-female audience in probably the most safe, comforting, and nurturing space I've experienced even as a public speaker now for over a decade. And so I'm going to do a quick side tangent. And I figure the male hippies do it at the mosque every week. So hopefully my sisters are going to be okay with it as well. I was born and raised a Muslim in what one might call a traditional practicing devout Muslim family. We went to the masjid six days a week. Sometimes we got a day off. Sometimes we went twice a day. We went to Quran classes four days a week. And I'm so eternally grateful to my parents for instilling in me a sense of connection to this community, to this faith, for encouraging me to speak out and be a critical thinker, for encouraging me to follow my conscience and not be shy. And yet, as a female leader, I'm so excited by spaces like this because I didn't have access to them as a child. I started to memorize the Quran when I was seven, maybe six, right around the same time that my brother did. A few years later, I faced an obstacle that he didn't. My menstrual cycle. It has to be said. And so all of a sudden, we started to face these complicated questions of could women travel to study? Could women enter prayer spaces if they weren't menstruating? Could their male teachers sit with them to teach them? Should they use pencils to flip the pages? Right. It was debilitating as a preteen experience that. And this was, again, coming from a supportive Muslim household that wanted me to engage my faith. I faced questions of what my relationship with my headscarf was. I started to wear it at six or seven, and that's kind of the age when little girls, or at least myself, really want to emulate our moms. So that's when she started to wear it, when I was six or seven. But over the next two decades, it's been an ongoing relationship. And every time I enter a public speaking space, 
I worry about what I'm wearing. Whether people will listen to what I'm saying or comment on my clothing. And I've had both men and women do that to me. I worry about access to spaces. I can't count how many spaces I've been where I'm the only woman. Not sure if they're listening, if I'm talking, or how I assert my right to be here and my qualifications to do so. And so I'm eternally grateful for the organizers of this space, for creating space, non-judgmental, safe, nurturing space, not just for the Khatibas, but really for all of us, to come and feel secure in our connection to our Lord as being direct and personal, where we help each other and bring each other up. So I pray for them and for the success of this masjid. So when I was invited to deliver a khutbah, I struggled with what exactly I wanted to talk about. Not giving khutbahs before, I don't have a lineup or a Rolodex of, of subject matter. Um, but there is work I do, and work that I'm interested in. There's also the necessary criteria and quality control that the women's mosque reminds us of, which I, I wish all of the other mosques would remind their khadibs of. And what is timely? I struggled between talking about asserting our civil rights, pushing back against racial profiling in the national security framework, police killings of African-American civilians, FBI targeting of Muslims, the war abroad, and then the issue of challenging Islamophobia. And that selection was challenging itself because not everyone agrees on the use of the word Islamophobia, or how exactly we should talk about what our community is experiencing. And yet I landed on that because many would argue, and I would argue that it is the root of so many of our challenges today. They might not be able to drone bomb Yemen or Somalia if we weren't dehumanized as a community. We might have more allies in public office if they weren't afraid to associate with our community. We might be stronger ambassadors for ourselves if we weren't afraid for our own safety. And so I'll talk about Islamophobia in three parts. What is it? How we experience it? How I've experienced it? But also, how we have a tradition of experiencing it. How I think we can best apply the Quran, comprehensively living our lives as servants of Allah to change the tide of Islamophobia. And then some specific next steps that I hope all of us will try to engage in before our next program. So what is it? What's the textbook definition of Islamophobia? The Center for American Progress defines it as an exaggerated, irrational fear, hatred and hostility toward Islam and Muslims, perpetuated by negative stereotypes, resulting in bias, discrimination, and marginalization of Muslims from civic, social, and political life. That's kind of long for my taste. I care we define it simply as a closed-minded prejudice or bigotry against Islam and Muslims. But still, that's textbook report jargon. It's what we might tell a foundation if we want to talk to them about how Muslims need support. It's what we might say to an elected official who's trying to understand what we're experiencing. Instead, when I think of Islamophobia, I think of the hundreds of people who call care offices across the country every afraid that they might not be able to hold on to stable employment if their coworkers find out that they are a part of the secret cult. It doesn't account for the people who are often too afraid to even make the call, worried about their phones being tapped, 
worried about rocking the boat, worried and maybe even borderline apathetic because they're not sure that help is available. When I think of my own experience with Islamophobia and censoring it as a motivation for my work to ensure that even if I don't experience it every day, that it's something that I'm empathetic towards. Something that I ensure that when my sisters call me about, I can cry with them. I can be a shoulder to them. I can help them navigate the process to figure out what help is available. Last year, I, as a Muslim woman of color, chose to question Memorial Day and the way we celebrate war in this country. The holy grail that is the military industrial complex. And for more than a week, I was profiled by Fox News. I had hate mail sent to my work. They found my Instagram account, which is kind of challenging. But jokes aside, I could not pick up my phone for fear of death threats and silence. So much so that it not only made me afraid, it made the people around me afraid. That every time I question war and the time since then, I'm asked and I must consider. Am I permitted to do this as a Muslim woman of color? Can I critique the military-industrial complex and the war on terror without having to worry about being a peer to condone terrorism, without having to worry about being called a terrorist sympathizer? I think of my fears of being told to go back to my own country at various events and every day, despite the fact that I was born and raised here. 20 minutes from here at the center of the 710 freeway. Make no mistake of it, though I have committed my life to civil rights work and I'm an attorney, I still have haunting fears at times that one day we will be shipped off to attorney camps. As a friend, we've planned we'll hide out in her apartment with canned food ready. But it's a real fear. It's one that some of us may be feeling and afraid to articulate because that's where we are. And it's older than that. It's cliche, but pre-9-11, pre-national security safe. It took me 15 years of lying to myself and others about the ease of being Muslim in a public school setting to come to terms with the fact that I had my scarf ripped off when I was just 10. No 10-year-old should have to learn the definition of a hate crime, should have to speak to a principal about not feeling safe in their classroom and then come back to school the next day to sit with those same students focused on our safety rather than our learning and our need to embrace our identity and be fully ourselves. Many times when we're thinking about Islamophobia, it's something that happens in another state. I imagine many of you are from California or at least residing in California. But it's a Florida problem, an Arkansas problem, a Tennessee problem. Rarely something we think of as a California problem. It's also something that we think about as a post 9-11 problem, which is why I often use the example of my pre-9-11 experience. And it's horrible. It feels like it's worse than ever before. There are conversations about what's worse, 2002, 2010, 2012, or 2015. It's hard to find the, the comedy in Donald Trump's presidential campaign because we're so buried in the Islamophobia around it. And so I turn to our faith, to my faith, to my practice, to give us strength during these difficult times. 
I'm reminded that even though our religion is relatively young, Islamophobia as a term is even younger. It's a name for a problem that has existed since our, since our religion's founding. When the prophet, peace be upon him, first received and worked to spread the revelation, he experienced far worse than what many of us can even imagine today. Reading the stories of the torture that his companions, both women and men, experienced sometimes pales what we hear about happening in Guantanamo. They were burned alive. They were pushed out of their towns. They were forced from their homes. They worried about their physical safety. Some of you may be following news about a couple of gun range owners that have refused service to Muslims in recent months. Now I know there's a more complicated Second Amendment conversation to be had. That's maybe not the right place here. But putting aside the Second Amendment for a second, the idea that there are businesses in the United States that are saying that they are Muslim-free zones shocks our conscience, moves us to call the Department of Justice, to outreach to the business owners, to go on MSNBC and CNN and say that this is not okay, that this is not acceptable. But it's also not the first time our community has been boycotted. Early in the Prophet Peace be upon him's experience, there were the years of sorrow, where businesses refused to interact not only with the Prophet Peace be upon him and those who had converted to Islam, but also the entire tribe that was aligned with him. So imagine if our interfaith friends had to worry about not being able to get service at a store because they were our friends. When the Prophet peace be upon him went to the village of Taif to speak to the leaders of that community about his revelations, he was literally chased out of the city by hordes of people, including children, throwing stones at him, his feet soaked in blood. And yet, he responded to that with love and mercy and compassion. He did not pray for their destruction. It's hard to think about praying for love and compassion for those who do harm to us. But that was what he did. That was his model. I've spoken at hostile rallies at events in the South. The legislators who authorized the military equipment be used to target civilians. And yet, I've never worried about being stoned alive for being Muslim, or being visibly Muslim or speaking about my faith. I don't share these stories to depress you, or even to indicate that because it happened in our tradition that we shouldn't push back against it. These stories are not stories of taking it or of submitting, but they're of responding in a different way. In community organizing, we say that we stand taller because we stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. It is precisely the same here. We have a rich tradition of responding to oppression, with dignity and steadfastness. Our tradition isn't one that simply reminds us of the sadness. Instead, it gives us hope and the tools necessary to respond, to make our best effort. In the Quran, Allah says, do not despair of the mercy of Allah. It is such an explicit and clear and succinct commandment. Do not despair. Do not be sad. Do not feel hopeless. When the supreme master of the world advises us, instructs us not to be hopeless, 
It means that it's an act of worship to be steadfast, to persevere, to be positive, to remind ourselves that there is hope at the end. But the people of Taif didn't immediately convert, but their descendants did. The Muslims responded to not having people do business with them by creating their own businesses, by creating their own industries, by modeling behavior that was better than what they experienced. Allah says to us, we will test you with a certain amount of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and life and fruits of your toil. But give good news to the steadfast. Those who, when disaster strikes them, they say, we belong to Allah and to him we will return. Those are the people who have the blessings and the mercy from our Lord. They are the ones who are guided. Imagine if every time there were a competition or a race, we could console ourselves and know that God is on our sides. And we are experiencing this because God tells us that we will, but also tells us that if we are steadfast and that if we come back to him over and over, that we will win. He says, verily, with every difficulty, there is relief. Every hardship comes with the promise of relief. All of us are experiencing hardships in so many different ways. Ways we don't know how to talk about. Ways we're not sure how to tell our family about. Whether it's in our marital lives, or at work, or in our studies, or in the broader context of Islamophobia. And every hardship comes with the promise of relief. Most of us, I think, are no longer in school. But for those that are, for those that remember it, fond or not so fond of memories. If every time you were given a test, you were assured that you would do well on that test, school might have been a lot more enjoyable that way. So every test in this life, the simple experience of receiving the test ensures the promise of success, but it's challenging. On Islamophobia more specifically, Allah says they want to extinguish the light of Allah with their mouths, but Allah will perfect his light. The reason we know the textbook definitions of Islamophobia is because there have now been countless studies published speaking of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent full time to mar our faith, to disparage our faith, to scare Muslim children out of being Muslim, to make Muslim workers less comfortable asking for the day off for Eid, to make Muslim politicians less, less comfortable running for office, to make all of us less safe, advocating for values that our religion teaches, be they economic justice, social justice, or equality for all. And yet, Allah, the master of the worlds, let that sink in for a second. It's not an elected official, it's not a boss at work, it's not a politician, it's not Fox News or MSNBC or Hollywood, it is the master of the worlds, saying that they cannot disparage me that I am bigger than that, that they can try and try. And we see that they are. There is no doubt here for anyone that they are trying, but they cannot successfully extinguish the light of Allah. It's true. Darkness can never extinguish light. So how do we do it? It's one thing to say that we should have hope and another to say that we will be successful. But what is our task? Well, it says in the Quran, the servants of the most merciful are those who walk upon the earth easily. And when the ignorant address them harshly, they say words of peace. I should note, I am paraphrasing throughout. I'm not in the habit of saying that, but I am. 
and those who spend part of the night to their Lord prostrating and standing in prayer. And when they spend, they don't do so excessively or sparingly, but are ever between them, moderate. But they repent, they believe, and they do righteous work. They are those who do not testify to falsehood, and when they pass near ill speech, they pass with dignity. A couple of years ago, there was a mosque that was facing um, objection in Tennessee. And the objectors put on an entire suit. Attempting to malign Islam as not a religion. Islam is a political ideology. It is an economic system. It is not a religion. They actually went to court to seek the judge's order that Islam is not a religion. They lost. Because we know that they will. Because Allah has guaranteed us that. But it triggered for me something that we would say to Muslim kids growing up. Islam is not a religion. It is a way of life. And I think we need to amend the way we approach that. Islam is a comprehensive religion that gives us a way of life, that talks to us not just about how we interact in worship spaces, but how we make all of our lives about worship, where every deed that we take on, be it putting on something nice to wear to work, or sharing desserts with our neighbors, or caring for the sick, or visiting our in-laws, or taking care of our health, all of it is an act of worship. And so it's not that Islam is not a religion, but instead a way of life. It is that it is a comprehensive religion that gives us a way of life. And so it gives us a way to challenge Islamophobia, a way that all of us can work on it together. We must engage in worship, myself included. It's difficult. We get caught up. I get caught up in my activism. I get so busy with my anti-Islamophobia work that I don't always have energy to read Quran. Sometimes I tell myself that it's harder to fast if I'm always working. But I must engage in those acts of worship as a means of my discipline, as a means of constantly returning to Allah in the way that is most pure. And beyond that, I should do more. That I should draw strength in night prayers. That I should draw strength in community. That I should give in charity. I wasn't asked to do a fundraising pitch for this month, so I won't. But I know that they are in need of your charity. But I also know that there are so many other causes in need of our charity. I sometimes return to the examples of the companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who gave until it was uncomfortable. And then I think about myself, purging my closet and giving what I don't want to wear anymore. Or giving charity and thinking, but do I have enough left to go out for dinner? And instead, they can give charity more. But this, this is real rest, is that when the ignorance address them harshly, they say words of peace. We don't call them names. We don't insult them. We don't blackball them. We don't refuse to do business with them, even if they won't refuse, even if they refuse to do business with us. We greet them with words of peace. We speak openly about our religion and our values. We advocate for human rights for all people, Muslim and otherwise, American and otherwise, documented and undocumented. And it is our words that have the most power. This task is one that we are built for. It's one that our faith community is built for. We have a roadmap for it. We're advised that we will experience it, and then we are advised on how to experience it. 
It's also not one that we are alone in. We have a law who has prepared us for this challenge, comforted us that we are ready for it, and provided us with this comprehensive guidebook. We have each other, our community, whether it's this mosque, those who are mosqued or unmosked, whether it is our allies or people of other faiths or of no faith at all, often a group that is left out when we talk about interfaith. And we have people, lots and lots of people potential. I think about what it would have been like to challenge Islamophobia before the era of Twitter, and I'm not so sure. But today, anyone with a smartphone or a computer can get on and talk about who we are and what we're experiencing. We have solidarity among each other, among elected officials, among other communities who have expressed and experienced similar things, and with Muslims across the world. Imagine that 1,400 years ago, when so much of this was being predicted, it took days for Muslims to send a message from one region to another. Today, Snapchat allows us to do it instantly. I'm still learning that tool, but I'm told. We have ourselves. We have the individual power of ourselves. Every single one of us is an ambassador. Someone who can speak out and dispel it. And terrible with statistics. You'll notice I didn't use any in my cookbook. But the one that I remember is that over 70% of Americans have never met a Muslim. It's a little bit higher in certain parts of the country, a little bit lower in places like LA or the Bay Area. But over 70% of Americans have never met one of us. And so it becomes easy to buy what the media will sell. It becomes easy to say, oh, I don't know them, but they do something strange. They eat that funny meat and they wear those clothes. Islamophobia is not something that CARE, or MPAC, or ISNA, or any of the other organizations that we love can take on alone. It requires all of us. Living and breathing Islam as a way of life, a mercy to the world, that will quell the tide, change the direction, answer the questions, and dispel the myths. A little out of order, but I say what I have said. May God forgive all of us. Alhamdulillah, all praises and thanks are due to God alone. What specifically do I ask you to do between this and the next khutbah? The first, so the short list, two things. I know we have lots of homework from other places. The first is Islamic literacy. I'm not asking that we go and memorize textbooks. That doesn't resonate with I'm asking that we get comfortable about sincerely explaining our faith. Not because we have to, but because it might help us do it better. The example that comes to mind for me is last week, maybe two weeks ago, I spoke at a church where I had the opportunity to explain the five pillars of Islam. I've done that many times over the last two decades. Not churches always, but explaining the five pillars of Islam. And I have yet to find an audience that doesn't resonate or connect 
with my sincere explanation of why the, the declaration of faith, the five daily prayers, the fasting, the charity, and the pilgrimage means so much to me. So I'm not asking you to learn the textbook definitions. I'm asking all of us to get comfortable practicing, explaining what our faith means to us personally. So that when people ask, we can answer. It doesn't mean that we will always have all of the answers, but we must commit to learning a little bit at a time so that we can answer those questions. There are many questions I continue to struggle with, and it's a process. The second is community engagement. Now that can mean different things to different people, but the thing about only remembering one statistic is that it sticks with me. And I'm always trying to figure out how we change it. Someone once said that there are 7 million Muslims in the United States, and if everyone got to know X number of people of other faiths or of no faith at all, we could call Islamophobia. But what does it mean to get to know? Growing up, my parents were very intentional about always wearing traditional clothing anywhere besides work. And as a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, sometimes that can be really embarrassing. Let's just put it out there. It can be embarrassing to be at the grocery store with your parents who are wearing traditional clothing. But it wasn't just that they wore the traditional clothing, it was something other than that. The trauma is around the traditional clothing. The excitement is around the conversation. The fact that they always struck up conversations with the cashiers at the grocery store. So that for that cashier at Safeway, when they thought of a middle-aged Muslim man with a beard, they didn't think of the angry protester that we often see on television. They thought of the person who asked them how their day was going and struck up a conversation about the groceries that were on sale. Not about Islam, but about life. I've heard from some of our colleagues in the Jewish community that one thing that has worked really well there is not just community building internally, but engagement with the community outside of the immediate Jewish community. Is that what would it look like for Muslims to be on the front lines of the environmental struggle, the comprehensive immigration reform marches, civic engagement in the presidential election of 2016? That's what it takes. And so I ask all of us to commit to one act of community or civic engagement between now and the next month. If you're already doing a lot, add one more thing to your plate. If you're doing a little bit, add one more thing to your plate. We can always do more. I am hopeful because our faith teaches us to be hopeful. I am excited by all of you. I am excited that Allah guarantees that with this hardship comes relief. Allah commands us justice doing good and generosity towards relatives. And he forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. He teaches us so that we may take heed. So all of us are learning on this path. I adapted this du'a in English from one of my teachers, who I found to be politically sound and always a great mentor. So I, joined, I ask you to join me in asking Allah to bring peace and tranquility to a troubled and looking world. Amen. O oh, Allah, send your mercy down like never before, not because we are better than those that came before, but because we are so destitute, lost, full of sin, and incapable without your divine mercy to overcome what has befallen the world you trusted us to upkeep. 
And while love, we have committed injustice at times towards our own self, society, and fellow men and women on earth. And so we seek your forgiveness and mercy. Allah, where we have wronged humans, animals, and the earth alike, we urgently are needing your mercy. Allah, bring love, compassion, and peace among our brothers and sisters. Allah, bring forth safety and security to all of the Muslims everywhere in the world. Turn enmity into love, honor, dignity, trustworthiness, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Empower us to use our hands for nurturing, curing, building and teaching tools that venerate the divine and serve his creation in small and large ways. Turn the weapons used against our communities into flowers and roses that may beautify the world, bring smiles to tired and hungry faces. Allah bring compassion to the world, shower it with justice, and give birth to a lasting peace. Help us feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, serve the poor, cure the sick, protect the injured, Comfort those sexually abused and attend to the young and old. Our hearts and souls bleed as we witness the real bleeding in streets, neighborhoods, towns, and cities that are etched into our consciousness. But we trust in your mercy and call upon you to bring suffering to an end. We ask you to forgive us and have mercy upon us for all that we have done to ourselves and others. Have mercy and forgive all those who have been unjustly killed, be it by our inept system of capital punishment in this country, by racist police officers, by U.S. drones in Muslim-majority countries, and grant those who have lost their lives the highest devoted paradise, for the world as a whole was diminished by their souls taken away through death. O Allah, make us instruments in your service and the service of your creation. As the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, the best of you is the best of Allah's creation. And so we ask that you give us the tools, the ability, and the courage to serve those in need and to be a medicine to an increasingly and visibly sick world. O Allah, make us tread lightly upon the earth and fill our souls with humility, patience, compassion, and love for creation, because they are your manifest signs in this world. Amen.